a Highline podcast. Hello, welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. We are recording this evening on the 31st of December, 2021. Last day of the year. It is the last <laughs> day of the year. So this is exciting. We've got a lot of brief updates for you all about what Whiskey Bench looks like in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't wait for all of you guys to come along with that. So before we dive into our conversation this evening, uh, I guess let's talk a little bit about what the new format is going to be, kind of what we're thinking for 2022 um, moving forward since Henning is stepping away from Whiskey Bench. Mm-hmm. Note, asterisk, for the time being. For, for the time <laughs> being. Yes. Um, Kat and Torner are just going to, we're going to carry the torch. Yeah, we are. We're not replacing him. <laughs> No, we're not replacing Henning because you can't replace Henning. Um, so we're trying to get creative with the format and type of content and cadence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Torna, what what do you want to explain to our avid listeners <laughs> what they can yes, expect next year? Totally. So we uh, this last year put out, I think, 50 episodes exactly, mm-hmm. which is super rad. And as you guys know, we kind of were all over the place with topics, which I don't mind. I love the variety and it keeps things interesting. But I think that we found our best groove when we did like a more congruent, almost like mini series. Yeah. I think we had the most fun with it. Um, I think it produced some of the best content that we have. So I think moving forward, we want to kind of continue with that momentum so we really want to focus in a little bit on the topics that we do discuss and try and have them lead into each other in an appropriate way. So, for example, our first, uh, uh, not season, but the first of series. series is going to be over political ideologies. I think we're going to be talking a lot more news this year, which I'll dive to, into here in a minute. And uh, there's a lot going on, and I think it's important that we get a good foundation and understanding of the political ideologies in history's past and the ones that are prevalent today. Um, so, to uh, this first episode, we're going to be talking about communism, and then we're going to continue to dive into other ideologies. Progressivism, fascism, we want to talk about anarchy, uh, voluntarism, you know, some of the bigger named ideologies and some of the lesser known ideologies because I think they're all going to become more and more relevant as our topics become more and more focused. And then a follow-up to that, I think we want to continue with our long format conversations, but stagger them every other week um, just to help us really devote more time and attention to more time to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also give Kat and I an opportunity to do something that we love, which is news and current events. Mm -hmm. So we this year are going to start, which not confirmed, but I think confirmed something that we're going to call news and brews. I like it. So in between our long format episodes, we're going to do smaller segments, more bite size. I'm going to 
not give an exact time, but definitely probably under an hour, hopefully like that 30 to 45 minute length where we can just talk about current events. Um, you know, we've mentioned in the past, the good, the bad, and the ugly as a, as an idea or a theme, you know, try to get some of the crazy news stories in there, kind of the, the, the good, the wholesome news stories in there as well as the crazy. And then also Kat and I love beer and we really didn't get to drink much beer last year. Only when we were jonesing for a second bev yeah exactly so we want to on our news weeks just crack a nice beer of our choice plus there are so many breweries here yes. in our hometown of bozeman exactly. that it'd be fun to feature and explore different beers yeah there's that are local. like thousands of beers and yeah. if we really get crazy with it we can branch out of state because there's just a sure. lot of good beer in the world sure um so i think that'll be really fun and then other than that uh i would love to get social media going a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I, I love like on my personal pages engagement. Engaging with people is fun. That's what it's about. So we definitely want to figure out how to get people engaged because it's fun. It is indeed. Yes. Yes. Again, because Zach gets shout outs all the time. Shout out to Zach <laughs> for engaging with me. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and hopefully we'll be creating, I think the goal is to create like more content for social media mm-hmm. outside of just the episodes. Um, and you can expect to hear this episode. This is going to be released on the 8th. Yes. So hopefully it is the 8th when you're listening to this. <laughs> and, um, if it's not, uh, please be patient it's, with us. It's me, me alone. So if you guys come picketing um i'm the one to be burnt at the stake <laughs> um but by the time you are listening to this um we will have shared our new logo which is exciting yes yeah, so we have a new logo rework kind of modernizing it a little bit um giving whiskey bench a little facelift yeah exactly and, yeah. and it'll give us a lot more uh opportunity to play around with the graphics in a format that i think we are capable of using Previous logos were in an Adobe platform. Long story short, it's a great platform. I'm just a big dumb dumb monkey, <laughs> and so uh, this new th- I've, I've looked at the the Canva and everything. It, it seems a lot more user friendly. Oh, it totally for is, the yeah. the amateur. You don't have to be like a graphic designer to use it, which is lovely. Right. So hopefully, we'll have a lot more fun with graphics. Um, I know that we will be having some stickers coming down the road. Um swag yes so merch we'll have some stickers to start um i know we're gonna have some other merch opportunities from highline which is really exciting so there's a lot that is going to come to fruition this year so i'm very very excited about that cool good stuff yes and it's new year's eve so i'm kind of stoked yeah rounding out the year doing what we like right yes drinking cocktails (laughs) All right, Kat, just try to sip of this. Did you try it yet? This is my second sip. Oh, okay, because I've been slurping down this thing. It is quite good. And it's a gin cocktail, correct? It is, Hence, yes. I love it. Mm-hmm. So tonight we have probably the most appropriately themed cocktail that we've ever <laughs> had and probably ever will have. Yes. <laughs> uh, unless I get creative and, and make up. Uh, a cocktail for the next few, mm-hmm. which could actually be fun. Yeah. But tonight, in honor, well, not in honor of, 
in reluctant honor of <laughs> communism, we're drinking the communist. The communist. Thanks to Kat for sending over the recommendation. Um, she's like, hey, here's a great themed cocktail, which I had seen before in passing, but I probably never chose because I knew we were going to talk about communism eventually. So this is perfect. We're drinking the communist tonight. It's tasty. Jenny. It's pretty sweet, but also tart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got double serving of, of citrus in there. I think that's why. But it's an ounce and a half of gin, an ounce and a half of fresh squeezed orange juice, one ounce of lemon juice, and then three quarters an ounce of uh, maraschino liqueur. Hmm. Shaken, strained into a coupe. No garnish that I'm aware of. No, that would be bourgeois. Yeah, <laughs> far too bourgeois. Orange juice is not apparently yeah, yeah, or maraschino liqueur. Yeah. We're already pushing it. No, uh, there's nothing <laughs> communist about this, other than the name. It's orange. It's not even red. Yeah, it's not even red. <laughs> so, you know, we'll work with what we what we have. Is there a fun history behind this one? I don't. Is it just the 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 recipe you sent? just was like hey it's it's tasty it's made with orange juice there's nothing communist about it it didn't even say usually that website even says like who who the bartender was that originally mm. made it but i didn't see yeah so you know there is no individual right right it's, yeah it's our cocktail <laughs> again yeah. it is our cocktail yes on brand the lemon is nice it balances out the sweetness of the orange juice it does yeah and I went to the store today specifically to only get orange juice, and I left with creamer and some limes, some lemons, and some oranges, and some pork chops, <laughs> and I didn't get any orange juice, but I bought oranges, so fresh squeezed it was, which, guys, I'm lazy, but if a cocktail calls for orange juice... Like, you really should use fresh green orange juice. It makes a world of difference. I would guess, yeah. I'm just a peasant <laughs> a lot of the times, so. You say that like it's a bad thing. It's not. A peasant. You're right. <laughs> so I think that's all of our bookkeeping in order. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say we just dive right in. Yeah, and this is obviously like a gigantic subject, yes. so <laughs> it's like a little overwhelming trying to figure out exactly where to begin. Um, I suppose maybe like philosophical underpinnings might be an appropriate place to start. Uh, yeah, probably so. Um, do you have any thoughts on that as far as anything beyond Marx or before Marx? Yeah, some... and. I'm not I don't have like a ton on this, but something um that I learned that I wasn't aware of um there are quite a few like early philosophical writings that aren't talking about communism under that name, but they're talking about sort of similar principles and ideas of of a society where like uh, property rights don't exist. Private property is not a thing. Um, everything is communally owned. There seems to have been kind of this like theme or thought that primitive peoples, like early hunter gatherers, 
it was romanticized is what it was. <laughs> but there is this idea that like they somehow lived more peaceably and sure. uh, because things were communally owned, which is also uh, maybe I, just an uh, yeah. assumption. Right? I would say I would say that there's actually evidence suggesting otherwise. Right. Right. I think autonomy and property are like instinctive human characteristics that have existed as long as we have. But there are some writings that kind of reference this like idea of what became communism, um, dating all the way back to antiquity, uh, early Christianity, which is maybe known. And then and then, of course, leave it to the French, the French philosophers of the <laughs> Enlightenment uh, really started to round it out. And then, yeah, by you know late 19th century, Marx and Engels started to really develop and articulate uh, this thinking. Exactly. And uh, this is going to tie in nicely to our conversation because uh, as far as French thinkers, very, very revolutionarily minded mm-hmm. uh, group of people. So right. seems fitting. Mm-hmm. Although Marx and Engels were not French, no. oddly enough. German. And Yes. And I don't actually know what or who their main influencers were. So... That's when I mentioned to you earlier before we started recording. So Marx originally studied law and then sort of fell in love or discovered his love of philosophy and and sort of over the course of his career kind of shifted his focus in that direction. Mm-hmm. And he was particularly influenced by the work of, um, I'm going to totally butcher this German philosopher's name, but George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel. Oh, right, right. Which admittedly, I don't really know much about Hegel. Um, although I think Hegel, parts of his philosophy that was adopted by communist thinking or sort of communism would be described as utopian. Mm-hmm. I believe I have that correct. Um, and so there's almost sort of like two branches of communism or communist thinking. And they were sort of, I guess they were, and this is where there's so much overlap between communism and socialism um they're sort of not one in the same but they are a part of each other so i think it's appropriate to speak to them both in this episode yes and we'll get into this too but you can't have communism without socialism because socialism is the main mechanism in which communism can come to fruition right as is capitalism Right. Marx talked about that. You yes. have to have capital or Lenin actually was the one who really pushed that. But he talked about how you have to have capitalism first, then you evolve to socialism, then you evolve to communism. And then everything's perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> but exactly. Um, but this whole sort of utopian, they were known as utopian socialists versus Marxists eventually as Marx became more prominent and his like take sort of became the dominant one, mm-hmm. but utopians kind of envisioned a more like progressive society with elite technocrats using science to manage society mm-hmm. and to improve upon it. Marxists advocated for full government control um, of the means of production, the abolition of private property, and a centrally planned economy. And Marx also argued that like this revolution could not come about through peaceful means, whereas the utopians argued that you, it could and that you could persuade people on the individual level mm-hmm. to get on board with this. 
Marx and then Lenin took it even further, strongly advocated for violent revolution to implement, to start this whole process. That right, you've described. right. So one of the main communism. one of the main tenets is that there is no other option. Like as far as the Marxist philosophy is concerned, you, you cannot achieve it without violent revolution. There's no other means, which is, I think, important to, to discuss here. But, um, you know, the utopian, just thinking about this, the utopian communism idea is really what, like you had said, what Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto. This was their, you know, brainchild that they brought to life in this manuscript. And it was actually quite a bit later until it was ever implemented in the Lenin case. And that was actually seeing it in practice. Right. And so... A couple you know, decades later. Yeah, a couple decades later. Yeah. Because um, what, the Communist Manifesto came out in 1850, 1848, something like that. Is that right? Okay. It's been like 170 or 171 mm-hmm. years I since thought it, was... it was released. Okay. But we saw the rise of communism and things like that in the 20th century. So about 50 years later is probably when it really started to to pop up and then you know all through the the 30s especially things started to to really get wild but the idea of of understanding society from a utopian standpoint isn't necessarily new there's lots of write, writing about utopia you know before the communist manifesto i think the most recent idea of utopia although i'm pretty sure it was actually more satire was sir thomas more's utopia the book the book total satire from like 15 something yeah and that's when that that word was first coined right and i was just reading about this the latin root of the word utopia means i'll look it up but i think mm-hmm. it mean, it means something like like <clears throat> not possible or something so like yes that work was complete right satire. exactly but what's interesting yeah. and this will tie into to later um i read uh sir thomas more's utopia ages ago as well as karl marx's communist manifesto Although I did just read it yesterday. Nowhere. Nowhere, Nowhere. is what it means uh, in Latin. See, that's Nowhere. really funny. Yeah. But uh, ages ago, I wrote a paper comparing the two ideas of utopia. But the Sir Thomas More idea of utopia is interesting because it it played on like uh, the requirement for like uh, universal moral goodness. But it also tied into a much more, which like I said, we'll talk about later in our series, more of like a voluntary state so it was like a utopian from the sense that you could achieve utopia if like everyone just you know willingly participated and things like that which is where some of that side to tire plays into but it's very much a different point of view of you know wouldn't it be nice if everyone cooperated and voluntarily did this versus like no this is what's best for society but it requires coercion right because it's for the greater good. Right. By any means necessary. Right. For the greater good. Both. And again, <laughs> Sir Thomas More is being satirical, but both overlook basic human nature. Right. And that's why Which things, I that's think why there's going to be a common theme among the next few topics that maybe they're all just grand optimists or something. But also like the undertones of all the writing is that this needs to happen because everyone's awful so it's like super optimistic on the nature of man but also super pessimistic on the nature of man simultaneously that's really a good point it's like a paradox right yeah totally huh interesting once we 
the nature of man is corrupt now, but once we enforce these rules, we'll have coerced the nature of man to be benevolent. Right. Which, again, huh. as we're going to see with communism, as we're going to see with even things like progressivism, um, especially fascism, it's all forms of controlling culture through the means of the state, essentially. I mean, that's really what a lot of this boils down to, is like how to change fundamentally a group of people using the state, whether it's for like the communist sake, like we just said, you know, becoming enlightened or separated from the restraints of property and, and you know, what we'll get into here shortly. But really, it all revolves around using the state to engineer your ideology. Well, and what it really comes down to is the belief that certain people know better than others mm -hmm. of how to live and how to organize society. And if only those people who know better could be in charge and make the decisions and they could improve life for everyone. Yes. And I do think that that is just a fundamental, fund, like just a different perspective and worldview that some people have and some people don't, yes. right? Some people want to be, I guess, believe in the human ability to to prosper and make good decisions and others look around and think these sheep need guiding. Right. So, and yeah, that's a common theme throughout all of these ideologies that we're going to dive into. Right. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a good point with the whole, you know, it's become almost like a derogatory term, you know, like sheeple or y'all are just right. a bunch of sheep. We're all sheep in one way or another. The big question is who's your shepherd? Um, <laughs> So, you know, mm, yeah. all these different ideologies have their own view of, of who, the, who that shepherd should be. That's a good point. But uh, I think before we can really dive into, into, the, into this topic into more detail of like actually the fundamentals of what communists believe, the, the root, you know, philosophy, some of their, their goals in, in creating their state, can we real quick... Just a little taste of capitalism and socialism. Oh, okay. Sure. Because it's such, it's, a, it's a, you know, it, it's opposed to capitalism and it's right. doesn't think socialism is far enough. Well, as you said, it's, it's, they've used it. Socialism is just a step toward communism. Right, right. Exactly. The Marxist view. So capitalism boiled down to the most basic thing is private ownership of property yeah i think that's probably the most key tenant yep. um and that private ownership of property allows for trade right because you own mm -hmm. whatever that good or service is and you can trade that so voluntary exchange is a key tenant mm -hmm. of capitalism um and the idea that well the profit motive is key and mm -hmm. was sort of what Marx took issue with the idea that because you own your these resources, you can exploit them and make money off of them. Right. And I... And, and in Marx's view, that because that ownership is potentially limited to select few, mm -hmm. that's inherently unfair. 
Yes. Or uh, unequitable. I don't know if there's many times in the rest of this conversation that I will be able to do this, but I think when uh, possible, you have to give the benefit of the doubt. There is historical context to how the world was operating in 1850. Yes. That does, you know, at least, it makes me at least understand uh, where the early ideas of the Communist Manifesto stem from. You know, we are talking about the industrial era, major exploitation of workers, health violations, as we would consider violations today, right? Giant monopolies emerging. Giant monopolies. You're coming out of a monarchy kind of system, really. I mean, in the 1850s, you're still... Well, and where they were in Europe, they were very much still under monarchies. You know, feudalism in many cases. Right. It really was true that you had kind of these dukes and duchesses essentially operating in the same way, controlling whole regions, and they all had, you know, like their... Fiefdoms. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and child exploitation and... Which my classical liberal in me is yeah. coming out. That isn't what capitalism is, right? That no, isn't what not. free markets are. It wasn't, exactly. That's what someone described crony capitalism. That's, you know, that's essentially... I mean, it's even... When you're operating under, like, a monarchy, too, That's that's... That isn't capitalism. Right, exactly. our understanding of it today. And so Marx's main problem with that is that he viewed that as capitalism. And his idea or his problem with that system, which I think honestly was pretty justified, was that uh, as individuals start accumulating capital, land, businesses, whatever that might look like, um, it forces anyone with less capital, i.e. the laborers, to be exploited by the capital owners. Again, very dis- different time in the 1850s, but there's no consideration or even really exploring the idea of what we see today where like there is the progression of, he didn't even consider a system where like, yes, you have people that are accumulating property, but simultaneously you have other people obtaining property. Well, because again, I think he was operating in a world where there seemed to be finite, mm-hmm. more finite. I mean, resources are limited, right? They are. And that's right. like, that's why it's good to have property rights over them um, so that they won't be like depleted. But he was operating in a world where if the baron owned the land, then they owned the land Mm -hmm. and there wasn't really another opportunity. There wasn't more opportunity for individuals to like break out of their Mm -hmm. class structures. Right. Whereas we live in a world now where like there's seemingly infinite ways to make money and prosper. Right. And you can create wealth. It's not just a matter of having a finite physical resource. There's other ways to create wealth. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So he's operating in a totally different world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think. A lot has changed in 170 years. Yes. And I think. (laughs) And I think what I found interesting along the lines of what you're describing, Torna, is that it seemed as though both sort of Marx and Engels, but then also like classical liberals of the time who were also French and were revolutionaries. Right. They both were in Europe were criticizing and reacting to the world that they were living in. And they were reacting to the brutal conditions of industrialization, right? And 
you know, as you just mentioned, ex- exploitive labor practices, you know, um, the stifling nature of, of monarchies that dominated all the nation states throughout Europe. And then and I think also sort of the other element influencing this thinking was they're also emerging from sort of living in like the age of enlightenment, right? Where all of a sudden there are these scientific discoveries that are empowering people with knowledge and kind of breaking them from more dogmatic, superstitious thinking. Mm-hmm. And that was power, like having that scientific knowledge was power, right? So, so people kind of on both ends of that spectrum soon would be communists and classical liberals. We're both looking at the state of things and trying to figure out how do we create, how do we empower the people who don't have power now? And how do we create a more equitable society? And, and how can we harness this scientific knowledge that's emerging all around us to meet those ends and to improve society? Mm-hmm. And then they obviously went in very different directions of how to go about achieving that. But totally agree with you that like it's entirely rational that they were looking for an alternative to the world that they were living in. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, on the on the topic, just briefly of of workers and the, and the horrible conditions through you know most of the industrial revolution. You know, it does also make sense why there's such an emphasis on things like unions. You know, trying to allow workers to improve their working conditions. You know, Mark Marx himself believed that unionization was a fundamental step into socialism and then obviously that kind of idea still remained in his view of communism so even as you worked through socialism and you ended up in a in a communist state there would still be some sort of formation of union as a you know a, a protection for for workers but funny enough later on cuz you know we're talking about communism thinking about progress doing what's best for workers, making things easier. You kind of still have that view in unions all through, you know, like the late 50s and 60s. But as technology advanced, and especially like among the the trades, things like power tools were implemented or crazy enough, I think it wasn't until like the mid 60s that a paint roller was invented. They used to paint walls with like 18 inch brushes. Mm. Unions were very anti-technology because their their main thing was like, especially because I know people that were old union guys that weren't allowed to paint with rollers because they said the work would get done too fast and everyone would lose their job. Right. And they would pay children to keep watch for union guys. And if the union inspectors came on site, the kids would run up and be like, union guys are here. And they'd, toss all the rollers away, take out the brushes and like pretend like they were painting everything with a brush. (laughs) Same thing later on with implementation of power tools, you know, unions kind of were skeptical of it again from an efficiency standpoint. So they would only allow like one power saw per crew or something like that. And then everyone else was using hand saws and it's just weird, this weird thing where you see this progression of, almost backwards thinking is kind of opposed to the idea of of unions but kind of rooted in almost this paranoia of like exploitation yeah i think this is that is something um that we'll dive into when we discuss progressivism and the progressive era mm-hmm. when unions in the u.s were emerging 
because there's there's a lot there to what you're yes. describing and it's and and there was a lot of sort of what for, as an outside viewer you know it seems counterproductive some of the measures that were put in place or like uh maintained by unions and yeah a lot of it is just it's i mean the whole it's a union is designed to to ensure the employment essentially of its members right mm-hmm. and ensure the wages and benefits of its members um so anything whether it be cheaper outside labor immigrant labor new technology anything that threatens that mm-hmm. like paradigm that they have is met with hostility uh, i want to have once we're through all of this political ideology series i think it would be really important to have a conversation about unions now i'm just note to everyone i think they would be really good cool i don't you know i'm not i'm not entirely sure your entire perspective on on unions so it'd be fun to hear it and actually discuss that but yeah i'd like to have a really constructive topic on that because i've I've got some thoughts on unions and I, i i think unions are actually far from good but i have some ideas of of counteracting that to still empower the worker but eliminate the the bad of unions, I believe, outweigh the good of unions. Let's just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of become obsolete in our modern, like, workforce. Yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway, back to communism. So I guess uh, if we wanted, we've kind of noted how Marx viewed um, socialism as a natural step toward communism and, mm-hmm. and, like, an important part of the evolution. In practical terms, sort of the key differences are that communism... Once you're in that state, it doesn't allow for any private ownership of anything. And under socialism, that earlier step, mm-hmm. uh, it is just the government that owns only the means of production. Right. But private property is still allowed. Limited. Limited. Right. But they there are certain types of private property that would be acceptable. Um, so what I have noted here for socialism is a philosophy rooted in the ideals of morality and justice. That's their main tenet or their reasoning behind it. Less economic competition and fewer people getting rich. It's a plan to distribute wealth and means of production should be owned by the state. Private property is still acceptable but requires larger government. Government will control larger portions of industry like energy major manufacturing and they redistribute wealth through policy and heavy taxation that's my summary of mm-hmm. of socialist state mm-hmm. especially in in the modern sense mm-hmm. um which is something that we should maybe get to later later what real world examples of socialism and communism look like today yes. around the world um but I feel like we haven't done enough of explaining sort of what Marx's critique of capitalism is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that specifically, but um, some of the things that I thought worth sharing, well, and maybe it's obvious that he sort of believed that capitalism exploits and oppresses the proletariat, the workers. Yes. And so it was inevitable that there would be a proletariat revolution. Um, and again, as we noted earlier, that is a necessity in Marx and Lenin's view. And yeah, and then, you know, private property would, um, is sort of private property is what allows the few to exploit the many. Yes. And so if you eliminate private property, 
then it's communally owned and that profit motive is which in marx's mind is corruptive is removed yes i was just gonna say that's one of the main i mean i just read the communist manifesto yesterday and i mean he really clearly states that like the second that a profit incentive is eliminated like true productivity and advancement will follow it he believed that when you remove the profit motive that yes, there's more more productivity productivity and innovation mm-hmm. like that's one of his key tenets which is crazy so I, i've got right. like a yeah, yeah it's uh, talking about like the nature of man or anything like that right. and maybe it is hindsight you know sure it's it's hard to think like a 1850s german german philosopher or whatever he is um i also just want to point out just because i have to yeah uh both marx and engels were born into upper and upper middle class Mm -hmm. families engels came from a very wealthy family his father had um i think like a textile business they were german but out of in london yeah. Um, Imagine the exploitation that went on in the <laughs> 1830s in a textile. Well, yeah. And I think, <laughs> right. And I think that was part of what drove him to this thinking, right? He saw like right. his father's business. Um, mm-hmm. But he was like bankrolled by his father's business. Right. And these, and, and, and again, so was Marx yeah, at a certain point. And very educated people. Sure. Yeah. Very high end of education as far yeah. as the time was considered. Yeah. And, you know, as far as Ingalls' parents owning a textile and, Actually, I, I don't know the motivation, but that seems fair, right? Looking at maybe horrible conditions. And there is a certain moral righteousness of of during that time in the context of how people perceive things, looking at something that I would agree with is a horrible injustice and saying, oh, this is bad, right? Right, right exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And that ties into it. But that might make sense while, again, another one of the main tenets in the Communist Manifesto is that wealth is directly associated with morality Mm. and so the wealthier you are the less moral you are Hmm. therefore being the push for the proletariat class the lowest being the most moral are the ones that are the only people capable of taking over society and leading it into right now, did Their they, utopia. in the Communist Manifesto, do they actually use the word moral or morality? Uh, because both of them were atheists. And I think that's another motivating factor, is both of them were, and that's kind of a key tenet of communism, is it's yeah. atheistic. And I think that they, both Engels and, and Marx, were not only rebelling against the exploitive labor practices they were witnessing and and the income inequality in their you know, dynastic mm-hmm. societies that they're living in. But they also were rebelling against the incredibly powerful church and what they viewed as like the stifling oppression of religion in their societies. So if they did use moral or morality, I don't think they meant it in a religious sense. And I think that's an important distinction to uh, make. Right. No, but, but yeah. moral worth was tied in their opinion to which you could argue, Political you know, class. they looked at the church and it was powerful and wealthy and, you know, and corrupt in many ways. Right. Land barons were oppressive, mm-hmm. right, and wealthy and corrupt. And so, yeah, I could I could see how you would come to that conclusion that wealth equals a lack 
of moral virtue. Yep, exactly. Um, another sort of key principle of communism is that it was viewed as an international movement. It wasn't something that its adherents thought would be limited or that they even wanted to impose solely in one nation state. This was something they saw as an international mm-hmm. movement uh, that in theory would eventually spread around the world. The only tenet was really class. There was n- right. not much of any other right. determining factor. Yeah. Yeah. Hyper focus on class, not like borders or ethnicity or, mm-hmm. I mean, you could say not focus on religion, but sort of because it was atheistic. So it wasn't something that. Right. And in that time, like you had said, uh, the church was, yeah, very, I mean, it was very class oriented, the church as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number one thing, like my number one note for like a review of the of Communist Manifesto is that all of history should be viewed through the lens of the time period. Uh, no. Well, oh. history, this is his, this is Marx's view. History is to be viewed primarily through an economic class struggle. Oh, right. right all right. of history. Yeah, everything is. A so class everything struggle. is a class struggle. Right. Yeah. Which would mean anything that has some sort of class system or class hierarchy is a no-no so the church economics monarchies things like that mm-hmm. anything right the second note i have here which is talking about proletariat and bourgeois history is a binary class struggle between proletariats and bourgeois the bourgeoisie it's pretty simplistic it is very binary mm-hmm. um the fundamentals of it yeah which later when we talk about in practice we can see where that goes wrong Right. <laughs> Which I guess we could get there. Um, so that's sort of the the roots of of that philosophy. Um, yep. Uh, can we go over a couple more roots, like yeah, actual yeah, yeah. points Absolutely. or points made or their sure, goals sure. for a society? Yeah, go for it. Um, I don't know if you have any notes on that. but So here's my little review. Um, I've got six notes here. So the first one I already mentioned, history is to be viewed primarily through the lens of economic class struggle. Two, history is a binary class struggle between proletariats and bourgeoisie. Three, moral worth is attributed to economic status. Therefore, a centralized proletariat dictatorship is just and good alternative. And Wait, repeat that? Moral worth is attributed to economic status. Therefore, a centralized proletarian dictatorship is a just and good alternative. Being the mechanism was that the proletariat, the best proletariats, would have to overtake the state and run it temporarily until the society that they wanted was established, after which the best proletariats would step down, and because of the nature of how they perceived morality and worth, they would be able to overcome the temptation of the power. Hmm. Here's a quote from the Communist Manifesto. If the proletariat, during its contest with the bourgeoisie, is compelled by the force of circumstances to organize itself as a class, if, by means of a revolution, it makes itself the ruling class, and, as such, sweeps away, by force, the old condition of production, then it will, along with these conditions, have swept away conditions for the existence of class antagonism and the classes generally, and will thereby have abolished its own supremacy as a class. So it's this great faith in the nature of man 
specifically the nature of the proletariat man to basically honestly become the savior. Like we'll take on this responsibility and by us throwing off these oppressive systems that were in place before us, we will, as it says here, abolish its own supremacy as a class. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess if their view is the ability to own property leads to wealth creation, which establishes classes that are then oppressive mm-hmm. of other classes, then if you abolish that beginning seed of private property, then no classes, no wealth can be created and no classes can exist. Right. Their folly, obviously, is thinking that you can still somehow have people's needs met mm-hmm. without the creation of wealth. Right, exactly. Right, but... And then a few other small points here uh, for removing profit incentive would lead to proletariat hyperproductivity. What did he expand on that one? Uh, I wonder if I have it saved here. He goes into a lot about marriage and stuff and religion as well. Right. I wonder if I can find it. Private property, proletariat and communists. Okay, I don't have it right in front of me but I can only swear to you that it is reading it you're like oh he actually thinks that this is going to happen like just talking about how profit incentive is is corrupt and once that burden is like taken off of the people like there's a much bigger incentive to like be creative and product productive for the society and uh, I don't get it I guess maybe he's thinking people could then if they aren't toiling under the like, burdens oh of no, a boss. Oh no, is this idea profitable? Like, yeah. They can just, you know, create right. what they want. And somehow everyone will still be fed. And, yes, right. exactly. Right. Which I can't wait till we talk about implementation of it because there's right. a lot to do with being fed. Right. Um, <laughs> five, uh, nothing capitalist do can validate the labor that it uses. Nothing that capitalists do can validate the, the labor that it uses. So like no matter how good the cause is or the product, it, it can't validate the exploitation of the labor. Hmm. Uh, and then six profit is theft. <laughs> Which, you know, don't even get me started on taxation. Right. Okay. We should definitely discuss Marx's labor theory of value, which you're sort of touching upon. Oh, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Ravel. The resolution concept, I think, is like the closest non-religious concept to the Christian idea of resurrection. Oh. Say more. Say more. I'm not trying to be preachy about it, but (laughs) like... It just like resonates with people, I think. Like the idea of newness. Oh, yeah. Like almost a sense of like reclaiming lost time. And I think when we think of resurrection, at least in this sense, 
it's not the old you returning. It's mm. like your essence, but there is something new. Mm. And now back to our conversation. All right. So I don't have um, actually any notes on on that uh, specifically. So why don't you give me the, the lowdown? Well, okay. So Adam Smith first sort of coined the concept of the labor theory oh, of yes. value, right? Yes. Meaning that um, the amount of labor that goes into producing an economic good is the source of that good's value. Right. Well, I know one of the tenets, you know, Adam Smith, I did read a little bit about that and I, I know a little bit about that. So like Marx's view on this, um, and correct me if I'm misguided on this thinking, like um, the example that I heard is like Marx would view if someone had a factory and was making, I don't know what, what, what are they making? iPhones. <laughs> the slaves are making iPhones. Um, and it takes them four hours to make an iPhone that then sells for three times the amount that it costs for labor. The business owner is exploiting a day and a half of the wages from that worker because he's making a day and a half profit of the amount of time that it actually takes. So his point would be like, you should pay your worker like part of the profit or whatever to account for the labor difference as far as Marx's perspective is. But there's other inputs that go into producing right. that well, product than solely it, the labor. Exactly. But the labor is the most important thing because the whole industry is nothing without the labor is how sure. I've perceived his view of it, mm -hmm. which I would argue is not true, but... So the, the being or say something takes six hours to make and a work day is eight hours, then if you're and again, we're talking about different times. So he's talking about like, oh, it takes a worker six hours to make a pair of shoes, which then it would take a lot longer. But say it takes six hours to make a pair of shoes that then sells for X amount like that worker should get his full day's wage for the item that he can make in less time or something like that. So there's like a value way on how he perceived labor. So what you just explained is totally accurate of what Marx's view is. Yes, labor is an input into the value of a good or service, but it's not the only input. Mm -hmm. And that's where Marx, as you noted, goes wrong. Um, and there's also sort of The concept of marginal utility that plays a factor because value is subjective. What I might be willing to pay for a loaf of bread might be different from what you're willing to pay. Right? Right, exactly. And also depends increased units of the same good diminishes its value. Right. Over time, right? Like eventually I don't need more loaves of bread at this time. And I'm willing to pay less and less for each additional value or each additional unit of it. So Marx is view of labor's role in determining the value of a good or service is sort of static um, and not 
I mean, it's kind of it's it's looking at at what creates that value in in one snapshot of time and not taking into consideration the larger picture of what determines that value. And he also ignores the the sort of obvious and again maybe at the time that he's operating in there was there certainly was less choice. But laborers have unless they're enslaved but he's not, I mean, he's using that language, but he's not actually referring to actual slaves. Right. Laborers have choice to take their, their labor elsewhere. They're exchanging that. It's not being taken from them. They're exchanging it for wages. And in a real free market, with more opportunity, with more choices, more competition, they can demand a higher wage. Which if is... their labor... If their labor demands it, right? Like right, if, exactly. So um, again, there's a lot more nuance there. Yeah, and again, that's a world that they didn't even consider, um, which is interesting to see how it's implemented now or the arguments in favor of it, you know, talking yeah. about the conditions of workers today. The amount of progress that has been made in the last 170 years is almost inconceivable. Right. Well, and certainly for some a writer at his time to even envision it. But right. Um, and that's where it's sort of interesting how, as I was saying before, sort of like classical liberals of the time were also looking at the current state of you know Europe in particular, is where this, a lot of these writers were from. Were you know they were unhappy with it, and they mm-hmm. were trying to find a better alternative. Um, and ultimately, I think both the classical liberals and the communists were trying to figure out how to empower individuals or not even individuals, but how to empower like the impoverished masses and where they diverge is that idea of the individual because Marx eventually came sort of came to the view that the individual was essentially a threat to the proletariat's like state Right. Yeah. Because if they weren't down with the collective, then they were impeding, you know, the progress that they were trying to achieve. Um, Whereas the classical liberal completely valued the individual and tried to look for ways to like empower people on like a one on one, you know, individual basis rather than, I mean, Marx's idea is kind of like, I mean, dismantling private property is obviously radical, but it's kind of unimaginative. Like beyond that, it's kind of unimaginative. It's really, it's just like changing who's in power. Right. But it's not changing the actual structure. Right, right. And again, the the actual power structure. Oh, there's nothing good here, so let's just burn it to the ground is a very unimaginative and frankly, generally non-successful route to take you know instead of again the imaginative route would be oh wouldn't it be cool if farmers could own land and have their own plot right which you know some of the ukrainians did for a little while right we'll get get into that right um which again with the individual point of view or individualism um individualism is counterproductive to communism because there is always going to be a class difference. Might not be financial, but there always 
is hierarchies among people because people are interesting and unique and it's not just unique to humans it is a fundamental element of biology that hierarchies arise because there are always people that are in quote better than other people at something and so that's why the individual is such a threat to communism and so that's why you see like you know the sterilization of culture like you know communist clothes communist cars like oh make everyone the same right if right. everyone's the same you know you're not going to be greedy or envious of your neighbor um and that's where again very sort of unimaginative and short-sighted because that diversity of talent is what innovates right right and what progresses and when you stifle that like the engine of humanity grinds to a halt which is what happened right <laughs> under communism yes exactly yeah um were there other of your points that you wanted to to share um no the only thing i have here is my little my little closing before like examples and stuff like that is that in theory uh it's a classless and stateless society communists and as we see it today, is founded with Marx, but Lenin is the one who brought it into practice. From a utopian fantasy to a horrific reality, its implementation requires a violent and bloody revolution to bring forth a peaceful equality. And basically, Lenin's view of it through his, his rule was that there had to be a vanguard party, which is that proletariat dictatorship, mm-hmm. whose purpose is to guide society from capitalism through socialism into communism requires a perpetual state of revolution until the goals are achieved by setting in place one dominant party. And even Lenin and stuff, like, throughout his rule, he always would say, like, oh, well, I'm the leader because we haven't, like, we haven't achieved the goals yet. But, like, once we do, like, I won't have to be leader. Right. Which, you know, it's a nice thing to say. I mean, Lenin... Uh, yeah, he said a lot of things. <laughs> the communists had a, a constitution that they wrote, like a bill of right. rights. Mm-hmm. I think it was Stalin. Stalin's constitution and it said all sorts of nice things, all the freedoms that people had, and you know, all that ties into the communist propaganda. Yeah, and it's interesting the way they envisioned structuring society. They again viewed it as they came up with top-down solutions, mm-hmm. right, in a top-down system rather than trying to create institutions that kind of establish maybe a parameter for society to operate within, like basic rule of law, right, and security of property rights and those sorts of things, that then just allow individuals to flourish on their own within this framework Mm -hmm. that ensures, like, stability. Um what they envisioned was much harder to implement because it required everybody being, everyone buying in, everyone being on the same page, and everybody having the same motives, which just goes against human nature. Yes. So right here I have, um, this is in section two of the Communist Manifesto under the proletarians and communists. He goes through like a bunch of the problems with the bourgeoisie, talks about the church and marriage and all these things. Mm And then he has a nice little 10-point checklist of, like, in the most advanced states, 
or countries, the following will be a pretty generally applicable list. Um, talking about like the goals of communism and, mm-hmm. and what they want and, and their achievements. And I think straight out of the Communist Manifesto that I'm holding in my hands, it's a pretty good source, right? Number one, abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Four, because that was that was a big thing in the context of 1850s. There really wasn't a lot of opportunity for a meritocracy. So you did have a lot of like, you know, serfs that got inherited their empires and kind of squandered it. Mm-hmm. So I could see why you would think inheritance is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, four, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. And this is where it kind of ties into anyone that threatens the workforce is an enemy. So that includes immigrants mm. or Even rebels. Even though this was an international movement, though. Right. Hmm. I have a feeling that this is like for future stuff, like, oh, once communism's implemented, it's going to be great. So we better watch out for the people that are just trying to get in on this action. That's my, that's how I would, that's how I perceived it. Hmm. Okay. Like once this is implemented, you got to watch out for the people that are going to come try to bag under our table. Like, oh, great communism, let me in. Hmm. You're like, yeah, you can come be part of it, but like, we're going to confiscate everything. At least that's how I perceive it. There's probably better readings into that. Five, the centralization of credit in the hands of the state by the means of a national bank and state capital and an exclusive monopoly. That's awful. Six, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Seven, extension of factories and instruments of production, um, like machinery, owned by the state or tractors or things like that, Uh, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvements of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Eight, equal liability of all to labor, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Nine, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equable distribution of populations over the country and 10 free education for all children in public schools abolition of children's factory labor in its present form combination of education with industrial productions etc etc i think the only thing on that list that i agree with is um, abolishing children labor but they also said in its present form so Interpret that how you will. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they uh, were necessarily opposed to child labor. Right. <laughs> it's just in its current form. Uh, and then a the little closing here. When in the course of development, class distinctions have disappeared and all production has been concentrated in the hands of a vast association of the whole nation, the public power will lose its political character. Ooh, repeat that. When in the course of development, class distinctions have disappeared and all production has been concentrated in the hands of a vast association of the whole nation, the public power will lose its political character. Mm. 
Right. That's when everyone becomes pure. Mm-hmm. And then directly after that list is the quote that I read earlier about how the proletariat will rise and then eliminate its own supremacy. Right. Do they go into detail of how they envision once pure communism is implemented, like how things will actually be produced? Uh, no, there's not a lot of details. It's very idealistic. We'll figure that out when we get there. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's going to own it and they're just going to do it. They're just going to do it's it. It's going to happen. Out of the goodness just of their hearts. Just do it. Right. So, yeah, that's what I got for um, communism straight from the horse's mouth. That was good. That's nice to have direct quotes yeah. from the horse. Um, do we want to shift toward real world application? Yeah, let's do it. So obviously throughout like the 20th century is really when communism saw its rise. You have communism rising all through the 20s and 30s. Well, even a little bit earlier. Um, But at the same time, you know, 1915 is like when the Italian fascist party was actually founded. Um, You've got communism rising, fascism rising, Nazism rising, which is not quite fascism, but is it's you know, there's there's a nuance there, they're different. Um so you have all these things rising at the same time. Then you have World War One kind of right before and during this evolution. Then you have this still period where things start to boil. You have the rise of the Nazi state um in the thirties. Then you have World War Two. Well you're missing the big old beginning of like Russian Revolution. Oh, true. Lenin implementing. Right. I mean, so so communism first manifested in real terms in Russia. Yes. With the establishment of the Soviet Union. Union um, which sort of after Russia's involvement in World War One, they it, they were ripe for revolution. Right. Um, right. And. I mean, that had been badly handled and the Russians were just, they had such a huge population. They were literally just like sent to slaughter throughout World War One. Yes. Um, so Lenin rose in prominence. They had their revolution. The Soviet Union was implemented. They started conquering neighboring territories, right? The Eastern Bloc. Um, and then eventually Lenin, I mean, there was always kind of um, internal struggle within party leadership and eventually uh believe lenin was like disposed before he died he died of tuberculosis and then stalin was installed as as the Mm -hmm. um general secretary and like leader of the of the party in the state um yeah and then their horrors sort of spread right the the thing is is, well yeah but it really took a long time before kind of the view of it really got out. Oh, sure. Which is yeah. where, like, the story, the incredible Mr. Jones comes in, mm-hmm. you know, the right. the man that escaped isolated Moscow to actually get reports of what was happening and the famines and all that kind of ties into the propaganda. But that's why, like, you know, there was, I think, a distrust of communism all throughout, like, the Great Wars you know, the the free West as we know it like did side with the communists against the Germans. Right. And I think a lot of the atrocities of communism at that point were not known until like the 40s. And then you have this red wave and the fear of communism all through the Cold War period. So it's, it's a really wild 
No, it was in vogue in, <clears throat> in America um, during the progressive era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the first half of the 20th century. I mean, it was really like... Uh, and it was in vogue all the way through the civil rights era, 60s, 70s. I mean, massive. It's in vogue now. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. You know. But I mean, like to a degree, like before sort of Cold War, Red Scare, you know, uh, oh, why am I forgetting the yeah. FBI director's name? McCarthy before like McCarthyism and him mm-hmm. like, you know, his witch hunts. Uh, it was like so popular and common that it was like in elite circles in higher ed. You know, my grandfather took classes where they talked about this where professors. Were right. Saying, right. Like, and in, in America, lots of wealth associated around it. You know, all these kids super wealthy that were like, yeah, we're going to revolt. And, like, there was a big movement of the Communist Party in the United States that, like, wanted violent revolution all throughout the civil rights era, but, like, it never came to fruition in the United States. Like, the actual revolution part. Because there was other movements as well, like, you know, during the civil rights movement, there were, like, forms of various fascist groups and things like that. Um, A lot going on during that time. Um well, and I think the U.S. also has institutions that make that kind of revolution difficult. Right, exactly. Right. Um, and the countries where, that's another sort of irony, you know, Marx and Engels sort of described communism as something that would that would evolve directly from, like, industrialized, wealthy capitalist Mm -hmm. societies and where it actually was implemented were in very poor rural agrarian societies so like their whole theory of how it would evolve never came to be no right and like obviously like communist utopia never happened but like but like even that initial step of like (sighs) we're going to go from capitalism to socialism to communism that's never how where com- where communism was implemented that's never the path that it took it it went from it, like yeah it kind of skips poor broken yeah. rural communities frankly were like exploited yes. and communism was implemented like throughout Russia the eastern bloc china laos yep. cuba right um mm-hmm. where else is it prominent now i mean all through like the Vietnam era, you saw the rise of communism. Yeah, they say so. Like the official list of communist countries today are um, China, which is obviously uh, not China's purely a, a yeah, communist China's country. China's a weird case. Yeah, that's like a whole other episode. Um, Cuba, Laos, North Korea, mm-hmm. and Vietnam. Yep, are officially self-declared. These are like self-declared yeah not necessarily looking at what their policies are and whether they really fit that right ideology um and then there are far more socialist countries both declared and then in practice Mm -hmm. than communist countries right um but obviously the lines are kind of blurred there between the distinction of the two do you have any particular i mean i in preparing for this was like totally overwhelmed by the atrocities of communism around the world which i think are also pretty well known but yes um, yes. 
So there's a lot there. So I don't know uh, if you have a particular direction you want to go with um, that. One of the big things is, you know, with the, again, we're talking about the Communist Manifesto being the handbook for communism, even today, that is written in 1850, that doesn't have clear guidelines on some of these things. And you wonder why when it's implemented, one, and it ignores human nature, but like things don't necessarily go as planned. Like one of the big ones I noticed talking about the Ukrainian famine and things like that, like there's no distinction on when someone becomes bourgeois versus proletariat. And so you have poor farmers, the uh in U- Ukraine, in the Ukraine, uh in, in Ukraine. In the Ukraine. Um uh oh, what were they? The Kulaks? The Kulaks. Um, who were a very poor kind of class of farmers who between like the late 1800s and like turn of the century like ended up actually getting to acquire some land and so they were poor farmers that owned the land and they were really good farmers and they provided a lot of food for the region once communist revolution came over they were targeted as being bourgeois their farms were seized because they owned the land. They owned that the was land. The distinction. So yeah. something like over a million people were displaced, and I think four hundred thousand farmers were murdered. That then was the direct cause for the starvation of six million Ukrainians. Right. Because the people that were slaving away on their property to produce food for their country. Well, you're, you just used Marxist language. They're yeah. slaving away. Right. They're voluntarily right. farming their land. Exactly. Reaping profits for yes, it. Yes, exactly. But, but like they're making the world go around. farmers, yes. That yep. had made it in the world. Right. That had overcome a system that was against them, which we agreed upon, and actually started to make a humble, you know, world for themselves. Like owned land, could farm it, you know, communism's talking about you know the abolition of inheritance you know those farmers that were murdered their children would have had an opportunity to inherit a farm right and have a family and that's where the idea of like generational wealth comes in and like but you wonder you know were more marx and engels so shallow in their thinking that their whole world view is literally predicated on like just the life that they were accustomed to which was being born into like wealthy industrialist families right and they didn't you know consider the you know what maybe would fit into the category of proletariat you know poor rural farmers but who do own land and who would want to pass that land on to their children Mm -hmm. right and who would rather not be taxed heavily out of existence right it seems like they really had like a very very narrow understanding right of society yeah because how else would you justify like yeah it's hard to it's hard to fathom and you right. know with modern Im- implementation of of communism and even like heavier forms of socialism which i know we're gonna talk about more probably in our progressivism conversation because socialism also ties into that somewhat mm-hmm. um it does punish the middle class. Things like communism can't allow for a strong middle class. Um, well, you don't have a strong middle class with 
like burdensome taxation and no property rights. I mean, you don't right. have you don't have anything other than abject poverty without property rights. Well, right, exactly. But like the idea that these farmers were, I mean, you know, you don't necessarily want a what if with history because you know this is the way that things unfolded, as horrific as they were. Like those farmers probably would have been a strong middle class in in Ukraine, like in the next couple generations, right, right. right. But like it's an enemy to the mission, um, and that's another problem with with communism as a whole is like nothing really gets in the way of the cause. Yeah, the ends justify the means because what they're doing is for the greater good. Right, which is just a horrifying. When you put the greater good, that's a common theme throughout, mm-hmm. and we'll come back to this with our other longer form episodes but that is a common theme this idea of supplanting the individual for the greater good of Mm -hmm. society like a lot can be overlooked yes um and a lot of damage can be done and with that perspective part of the reason why you see so much infighting and paranoia and things like the secret police and you know murdering of officials is because it is a very I mean, it's its own religion, right? But like, if you are entrenched in that ideology and you believe that everything is for the greater good, anything opposing it is is a moral evil or a threat. And you wonder why inside the circles, like there was paranoia and worry about being overthrown and people infiltrating and trying to undermine communism. And you get this weird, deep cycle of just atrocities that occur for the greater good yeah that's again because it's not a system that 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 people can function within they have to be controlled they have to be coerced because it does it does fundamentally go against human nature so if it goes against human nature you have to control human nature which requires force and coercion and there's that and there is no point where that ends right in Mm -hmm. fact all that it, it only compounds on itself so and then you just have weird things that I don't think necessarily have to do with communism as an ideology but maybe more what happens when you give centralized power to any group or person uh stories like uh was it Mao that caused the famine because of the birds that he killed Yeah oh god like yes Like you give power to one nutcase who has the power to quite literally do anything he wants in his country. Right. And he can say, wow, these little songbirds really annoy me. Sparrows. Well, no, he thought the sparrows were. Right. Well, yeah, he thought the sparrows were like pests. So everybody killed the sparrows. But he made it a mandate. He's like, everyone has to kill, like kill kill the birds or be killed, essentially. Right. Um, And then rats and locusts literally like took over the country. And again, starved like 10 million people. Actually, more than that. So, if, oh, if we're on like this subject, <laughs> no. So, twenty-six million. Here's a list <laughs> through the 20th century: ninety-four million people right. died under in China right. alone. In China alone, Mao. Under Mao, yeah, right. And to think that there are people today in America that are proudly pronounced. Oh, Maoists. I just got that wrong. Sorry. 94 million total that perished in China, the Soviet Union, no. North Korea. I've heard as high as 120. I mean, yeah, the numbers kind of right. vary. Um, it's like 60 in China, right? Let's look it up. Yeah, this is important, guys. This is yeah. very important because 
I don't, you know, I'm willing to give consideration in the context of when these ideas originated in understanding the motivation. But given the track record, I have a very difficult time and I don't think I can sympathize with anyone who is a communist today in thinking that it's capable of any other result than murder and exploitation of people. And I don't know if it's being naive or rejecting reality, but I think it's important to listen to the numbers and understand that like that can't happen or like you don't want this to happen again. Well, Let's get to the numbers, and then I have some thoughts on why people... Yeah. I think it's just a basic misunderstanding of, like, human nature and economics yeah. is why people continue to think mm-hmm. that it could work. Um, 65 million is the generally accepted estimate uh, of people who died in China mm-hmm. alone under Mao. Um, 65 million. And that number varies, right? Um there's some who think it's higher than that. And that's just under Mao. Like you factor in the one child policy and you know, the genocide uh, yep. that Xi Jinping's committing right now. Like it's many millions more. Yep. Let's see how many died under the Soviet Union. I don't know if they count like the starvation of Ukraine's in that. I mean, we're also talking about like a million foot soldiers that were just fodder for the the war you know russia in world war ii was obviously struggling under communism as far as just having enough supplies and so there's stories of entire battalions of soldiers um, not having shoes or winter clothing fighting in the winter uh, and then worse than that being distributed into groups of three men because they only had about one rifle to three men in the in the army and it was you line up and when your when your buddy in your group dies you pick up his rifle and then if you die the guy behind you picks up your rifle um and i don't know if those are included in the number but they probably should be i don't know if they are um yeah the estimates around 20 million yeah um but yeah i don't think that includes those types of mm-hmm. excess deaths. This is like counting gulags and famines, essentially. Yep, yep. And the gulags um, is a whole nother, another topic um, because of the issues with class, because of the paranoia, um, especially with because of things like the you know the the, the rooting in, in atheism. You do have horrible persecution of of the church in Russia. Um, just listen or look up stories of saints from Russia. I mean, the horrible things that were done to priests and nuns and and all sorts of stuff like that. You know, people being horribly killed just because, you know, they're starving. They they pick up a a grain from a grain bag that they weren't allowed to. Um stories all across Ukraine and and Russia of of children having to eat their parents or parents having to eat their children. You don't you don't come back from that. Right. No, and it's, you know, I often think about uh, in the context of our conversations about this Russian pressure on Ukraine today. 
which is complicated and again right subject for another episode um but there's a part of me that looks at that and thinks you know yes it's not the same leaders but like the russians the soviets starved tens of millions of ukrainians not that long ago right it's you know like that must be that's got to be something right. that the population thinks about when you know their fears of russian I mean, invasion there there are people our age that have living family members that went through that right right um, who survived it you know yeah we talk about the atrocities of auschwitz and things like that um they're not any worse than the gulags and i think people either are ignorant to that or willfully reject it you know not everything's a, a numbers game obviously but you wonder why there are i mean there's a lot of philosophy around like what ifs of history and things like that and if you just play everything as a number games there's a lot of people that make the argument that like we should have sided with the nazis and defeated communism because on paper communists killed more people which i'm not saying is a good take well and we also didn't have the information on what communism no, was doing and but it, do right. you see the point like atrocity is atrocity and like again like i said hitler uh and stalin are equals in all things evil for sure um mao's in there too yeah maybe more mao's a nutcase yeah hitler plus stalin equals with mao. like really i mean the the red guard right under mao which was just like citizens that you know right basically were like i don't know they they were believers and mm -hmm. they they took up the task of ensuring that other people that people didn't dissent and that people were good communists and weren't a threat to the state and yep. i mean it led to some of the most like barbaric torture yeah and shame and also like cannibalism in some yeah. of the more remote parts of china were like yeah, like really, really gross. Yeah, exactly. Gross and like, this is one of the like things, people. you know. There's, there seems to be a really nonchalant view of of communists. And let me preface this: I am incredibly nonviolent. Like, I do not think that you, the non-aggression principle, I hold dear to my heart. I have no problem with self-defense. We've talked about this before, but like, actively engaging or trying to hurt people even if you think they're evil people is a no-go for me but like you see the movement of like punch a nazi in the face but like if you said punch a communist in the face you'd probably be ridiculed right but like uh, the thing that's scary about communism is there's a lot more communists than there are nazis that's true right and i don't think it's well, an ideology done... to take lightly or to no. encourage and that's why i'm being hard on it well, and we've done a very good job in America of rightfully um, discrediting and demonizing, not even demonizing, but just like exposing the evils mm -hmm. of Hitler and Nazism and the Holocaust. But yeah, to your point, we haven't done a very good job of like educating people about 
the horrors of communism. Um, even, you know, like Pol Pot and the killing fields in Cambodia. I mean, like, yeah. he was also batshit fucking crazy. Right. And I'm like, do people even know about that? I don't know. You know, there's, it's, it's not something that, I mean, those were things that I like did not learn about in school. No. I had to teach myself outside of school about those but things. But the thing is, we all learn about the Cold War and the Nazis, or in the communist scare. Right. But we don't actually learn about it. But we learn a lot about Nazism, mm-hmm. all of these things, which, thank God. We should, but. Had a pretty short life as far as dominance is concerned. Right. And is ever shrinking, I would say, although I'm sure people would argue with me on that one. Um which is good, right? But I'm like, maybe we should address communism and kind of have the same view of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing too is, again, trying to understand where it comes from, which I think you want to get into more. Like, I understand some of the motivations as far as like looking at conditions of workers and wanting a more equitable system. But the track record in history shows that like you can't, have respect and care for poor people and support communism because you know who died and was murdered and tortured and forced into starvation and cannibalism in all of the communist countries. It was the poor people. Well, the numbers were so big that it encompassed virtually everybody. Right. Right. In Cambodia, if you wore glasses, you were considered bourgeois and you were killed. Like, just killed. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, like, it was, I mean, no, I don't think there's any, like, justification for targeting a particular group and labeling them as culprits of some broader ill and justifying, using that as justification to, like, kill them. Right. But even regardless of, like, that, communism in practice has never shown an ability to like understand nuance right Mm -hmm. or to like make distinctions between even they tried to make a distinction between the proletariat and the bourgeois but as to your point everybody ends up getting swept up in the bourgeois and it also is like and, and everyone wants to be proletariat in that system right you don't want to be bourgeois right so you know, it, again, it's the, talking about 1984, things like that. It creates this paranoia and it creates this, it might not incentivate, incent, uh, wow, incentivize. It, it might not incentivize profit, but it does incentivize snitching out on your neighbor. Like, hey, if my, you know, ooh, you're looking a little bourgeois today. Right. Well, anytime <laughs> you're, you are re- relying on the state to, fully control human activity then uh yeah that just i think like suspicion and insecurity Mm -hmm. will immediately like result and having because a lot of these countries and humans can't flourish operating under that no right that's the other like and in a in a world with such scarcity uh the fact that so many of those countries did have an incentive program like hey be a good citizen Turn in your neighbor. You'll get rewarded. Or you'll get a little more political favor or, you know, whatever the incentive was like. Yeah, you're going to look out for that kind of stuff. Anything to get you 
a little higher on the totem pole, even well, though. Well, then isn't there, and then doesn't that admit that there is inevitably a hierarchy in right, society? Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing I just wanted to note that you mentioned earlier, um, that I, which I've never heard, that people have argued that we should have sided with the Nazis to defeat the socialists. But what I've Again, I am not saying that's a good take. No, I know. I know. I know you're not. But another, but something that I think is more common than that was <clears throat> um, like General Patton in World War II. And I believe Churchill, Churchill for sure, I think was on the same page as him and I'm sure others, but they were very vocal about it. When we did defeat the Nazis, they wanted us to continue on and turn on the Russians mm-hmm. and like or yes, the Soviets exactly. and finish, finish it. Yes, who knows what that would have turned into how many more lives would have been lost maybe less probably than what ended up being lost right. at, by the end of the 20th century at the hands of communism um again you know and it's this thing that maybe it's not there is something to be said about honor you know when you when you do play everything as a number games that's when you get into the greater good honestly like yeah that's siding with the nazis over the communists like if you just play number games hands down that is the best option right you know but by the time by i mean by the time world war ii is coming to a close you know maybe the mass public weren't fully aware but our governments were aware oh yeah of what was how oppressive the soviets were Mm -hmm. and we knew we couldn't trust them so i i mean i think there is a fair argument to be made that like that maybe would have been a better route um yeah but war is hell, right? And yeah. it creates strange bedfellows and it made sense. It was like probably the right calculus at the time to like join forces with the Soviets to defeat the bigger threat at the time. Right. And again, numbers, it's like civilian deaths, military deaths, like again, what ifs, but like if we had sided with Germany and defeated Russia, like we probably wouldn't have been strong enough to defeat Germany. Well, okay. Which we never co- could have done that because right, that yeah. would have meant turning our backs on all of our natural allies. True, and and true. then also like the Japanese were attacking us and were sided with Germany. So yes, like exactly. that never would have happened. Again. But right. I, I know that's not your take. But, but, under, <laughs> but again, just viewing things as a, as a numbers only game, you get into some weird situations. But speaking of Japan, um, real quick, again, trying to understand motives. It's unfortunately um sad to see communism rise in china um especially because of how honestly recent it is talking about the japanese i can understand why it was able to take hold so well because of the hell that china went through with the invasion of japan and the atrocities that the Japanese inflicted upon the Chinese people. Right. And that kind of primed, I think a lower class of people who took the brunt end of years of horrible, horrible things, murder, rape, everything. Yeah. Read the rape of Nanking. I think I've said it before. Read it. It'll make you weep. Um, And so I think those kind of things in history open up and prime people to be receptive. To be radicalized. Yeah. Like, hey, here's someone that's taking control that says he's going to protect us. No one protected us before. Granted, it wasn't like a united China. Right. There was a whole civil war. Right. Right. There's all this context. So yeah. It's like, I can understand it 
then. And so now we have to try and understand, like, how do we now, with the insight we have, address communism? Right. Because we don't have the incentive or the motives to justify it now. Right. And I think it's also important to note that everywhere communism took hold, again, one, it didn't evolve naturally from like a free capitalist Mm -hmm. state. Right. And two, where it did take hold, there was civil war, if not simply infighting within the country. Right. There were people who didn't want to be communists. Right. Right. Exactly. Like Chiang Kai-shek was leading like sort of the populist opposite of communism. Um, I shouldn't say opposite because that's, I think, <laughs> a misnomer. But anyway, but <clears throat> the opposition to to Mao. Right. Um, same in Vietnam, obviously, you know, same in same in Russia before the beginning of the Soviet Union. Um, and another flaw with the communist model, because it is a top down system, it requires complete adherence. Therefore, any dissenters are a direct threat to the quote-unquote greater good. Right. And in all of these instances, there was maybe even half a population of people who actively didn't want to go this way. Right. So they had to be exterminated. And there's no limitation or rules onto what's too far. Like, like it's it requires well, right. bloody and violent revolution. Especially when your morality is based on monetary value, not yeah. like actual yeah. principles, then yeah, anything goes. Right. Um, but I think to your point about like, how can we push back on like the was this a word the romantas romantan romantas <laughs> romant romanticizing yeah romanticization of uh communism in like Western culture today. Um, I really do think it's just like better education about one the history right and like what implementing it looks like yeah but the common now almost cliche refrain is well that wasn't real communism right or that wasn't that's not real socialism right which when you are reading you know from the manifesto you could argue that right like it wasn't implemented correctly and it didn't evolve from capitalism through socialism to communism right and it didn't they never were able to reach the state where you know, the the state system was able to dissolve itself and we all lived peacefully in this utopia, right? Yeah, exactly. So you could argue that that never happened. But I think the counter to that is that that literally can never happen because it goes against basic laws of nature and economics. Um, so I think just educating people about what those basic laws are is the way to counter this. Yep, exactly. Um, and one, as we've already talked about, is just like, I think it has communism has a complete misunderstanding of the role of property rights in in creating prosperity and in conserving common resources. The idea that that no resources would be owned by anybody. I mean. That's insane. Like we know what the tragedy of the commons looks like when no resources owned by anybody. There's no. Uh, motive or incentive to conserve it and the incentive is to extract as much of it as you can as quickly as you can before it's gone because nobody has a claim to it nobody can a property right allows you to 
exclude people and then trade that good. And if you can make, if you can trade it, then you're incentivized to conserve it so that there's more of it to trade yep. to further benefit you, right? And the beauty of that system is it's not just benefiting you, it's benefiting the people that you trade with. And then bigger picture, because it's being conserved, it's it's benefiting countless people into the future, right? Um, so just so that there just seems to be this total misunderstanding of what the function and the role property rates play. Right. Um and then the other really the other really key piece um is what and I think we've talked about this on I've brought this up on the show before, but um Ludwig von Mises, who is an Austrian economist um, who uh, escaped like World War II and made his way to America, um, he spent pretty much his whole career trying to explain like why socialism is a bad idea. Right. And um, one of his most like prescient arguments was is what he called the knowledge problem. Which is basically the idea that no one individual has enough knowledge to effectively and efficiently organize society and like plan an economy. Um, and that's because knowledge is dispersed amongst individuals. Right. Um, and 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 that's why that's why a, a free market <clears throat> system, if we want to call it that, I, I've said this before, but I think it's not even a system. I think it's just the natural state. But like that's why free markets are preferable because it allows it channels individual action and choice into a complex market uh where prices act as signals which signal scarcity or abundance um and and those prices also reflect like consumer choices and and the demand on producers um it's that is how we figure out how much bread needs to be baked mm -hmm. and at what price it should be sold for, right? Like there isn't one bureaucrat or a dozen bureaucrats that can determine that. That has to emerge organically through countless individual choices. Right, which is why, I mean, because we're seeing it already hinted at in Germany and things like that, like the idea of setting prices on goods and things like that. Oh, like, yeah, that's that's starting to emerge never here. Works. Yeah, no, it doesn't, ever. It always leads to scarcity. Yeah. Always. And the same thing can be tied to, you know, a more applicable thing. Like we've been harsh on it before. No matter who's in office, like tariffs are a horrible idea. And like this right. idea that things can be controlled from a centralized position accurately or for the for the better of everyone is just doesn't seem to work in the log of history. I think that's important. Um, do we have anything else to, to add to this? I was just going to say that I think um, so when China sort of was evolving past the Mao era and they liberalized and they started opening their markets, um, they acknowledged that they sort of acknowledged this knowledge problem, right? Yep. And and. Uh, recognize the benefit of like private property and trade um, and price signals and individual choice. Um, now they still had a, you know, heavily regulated and managed bureaucracy, right? But um, 
what's scary is that today Xi Jinping uh, openly talks about how like that was a mistake. Right. And and he wants to return to sort of a more pure Maoist form of government and like economy. Oh, how many people China. live in China today? I, billions. Yeah, it's not a good thing. Right. So it's it's interesting to me though that there have been and and same in, you know, the Soviet Union. Eventually people started to acquiesce and said, you know, like, okay, we do actually have to acknowledge these basic economic principles that are a reality. Um so I think that's kind of I mean that really is kind of makes our point, right? Right. That I think so. Even they acknowledge at a certain point that like this that the knowledge problem exists and that a centrally planned economy simply does not work. Right. And so China is this weird thing where if you look at like the political spectrum, it's like this elongated blob where it like wants all of the elements of authoritarianism that you would find in communism, the surveillance, the control, the social engineering, social credit scores. But then it also goes to the extreme of like crony capitalism where like most anything can fly. Exploitation can fly. Um, that have no value of intellectual property. So there's no enforcement of copyright or anything like that, which is a huge issue trying to just stealing intellectual property and then producing it and selling it. So it's this weird blob of like the worst of everything. All in one. Right. Yeah. That would actually be, we should devote an entire episode to talking about, China. Yep. Um, like what and is just China? like their last like century of yeah. history would be fascinating. Um, uh, I think. Yeah. Dao Xingping is who I was thinking of. I'm probably not pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly, but that's who I'm thinking of who kind of like. Led China's economic revival. Oh, and gotcha. Opened up markets. Um, yeah, and Xi Jinping basically says that like that was a total fucking mistake and we should yep. <laughs> reject what he implemented. So. Yeah. So in many ways, communism is still on the rise around the world. Yes. And it's sort of interesting um I was looking into sort of percentages of Americans who support um, socialism. People haven't done polling on communism specifically. Right. I'm sure it wouldn't poll well, but on socialism. Um, and it's interesting. So it appears, um, and not all polls are created equal, right? But That's it true. appears that sort of during the pandemic, polls done on this subject implied that people were becoming more receptive to socialism. Um, Let's see. I have no doubt of that. Yeah. So in 2019, 58% of Americans aged 18 to 34 reacted positively to the word capitalism. Um, by 2020, that dropped to 49%. Um, in 2019, 39% of all U.S. adults viewed socialism positively. And since the pandemic, that has creeped up to 41%. 
um, socialism had positive connotations for 60% of black Americans, 45% of American women, and 33% of non-white Republicans, which is sort of interesting. Um, but since like post 2020 election, ah. there's been a new, <clears throat> another shift. Um, and again, not all polls are created equal. So it's like, it's hard to compare two totally different polls with each other. And, but anyway, but some polling done after the election implies that socialism is actually now starting to fall out of favor. Mm -hmm. Um, one poll suggests that only 32% of Americans say that they prefer socialism to capitalism. Um, and in early 2018, that number was 41%. So it's dropped by, by over 10 points, um, mm. which is, I suppose is encouraging. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a mixed bag. And obviously young, like, among younger Americans, it's trendy. Yes. So there's much to do to, uh, I don't know, work against. There is. And <laughs> I, I'm really excited about this series because um, I think it's important to have these conversations. It's important to try and create that nuance um, around these topics, especially when we're talking about uh, ideologies, um, things that you can label people. You know, it's pretty easy. I, I joke about people being commies <laughs> when they're not, right? Right. People throw Nazi around a lot. People throw fascist around a lot. Um, and as we go through this conversation, I think it'll be eye-opening, or hopefully eye-opening to a lot of people, that the communists, the Nazis, the fascists, the progressives, the socialists, they're not all that different on paper. There are obviously some very key differences where things start to, to go in different paths. But like if I took a list of like the 10, you know, ideas around or some of the values held by all of the people I just listed and I took like six or seven of like the ones that most people would agree with, you would be surprised. Like a lot of these people, communists, socialists, Nazis, fascists, they have a lot of the same goals in mind, how it's implemented and who is able to access those goals vary. But like. You got to be very careful with how you label stuff. And, you know, it's easy to look at one, you know, one person thinks, you know, inheritance tax is bad. Okay. He's not a commie because he <laughs> prescribes right. to one, but I'm guilty of it. And I think a lot of people now are guilty of it. So I think it'll be fun to go through it and, 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 and talk about these differences and, and maybe some of the misconceptions around certain things, mostly like around fascism. Um, its roots and mm -hmm. obviously fascism is bad. Just, I might've just made it sound like, right. no, no, fascism <laughs> is very, very bad. I think it'll be interesting <clears throat> to explore the misconceptions around all of these different ideologies. Um, right. Yeah. And like the idea of, and I think it's also, it, it's a disservice for like people like us who actually are concerned about like communism being in vogue, right. Or mm -hmm. socialism being in vogue. Um, I think it's it's a disservice to our efforts when 
we cavalierly throw around those labels um, for exactly the point you've just made that like some things, some policies we may not be fans of, but they aren't, but that isn't, they aren't necessarily socialism in real practice. Right. right? And yeah, like exactly. that kind of um, degenerates like what real socialism is or what real communism is. And um, I think it, 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 is insulting to the people who have actually like suffered under those systems. Right. right? Exactly. So, yeah. So I think it's important to have a better understanding of them and to use those words carefully. Yep. Exactly. I agree with that. 100%. You know, uh, I was listening to a presentation by Dr. Jordan Peterson and he had a nice little quote in there when he was talking about, um, Marxism specifically. Um, he made a wonderful point. He said, you know what? Capitalism has created both inequality and equality. You will always have people that don't make it, but a lot more people do. He said, every other system that's ever been implemented has only created inequality. And I think that's a very fair um depiction of where we're at now and so our next conversation on progressivism i think is going to be fun because there's a lot of socialists that call themselves progressives which i think that term has become kind of and progressives that call themselves socialists right Right. whereas you know progressives would probably a a traditional like we have traditional liberals like a traditional progressive would probably value capitalism because they've seen the long-term effect that it's had on the most impoverished. We live in a time now where, what's the prediction? Like by 2040, like the the like adverse poverty is going to be eliminated. Like whatever the the standard is. Oh well, it's definitely diminishing year by year. Yeah, worldwide. I mean, there's still like you know, ten or five. It's like either five or ten percent of the world is still like super impoverished. But like in the next 20 years, we might see that completely vanish. Which is wonderful. So, like, the progressives value things that I think are maybe not necessarily. I should say, I think the term is um, co opted a lot as far as like what a traditional progressive is. Um, but then we get to talk about fun things like humanism and mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be a really good conversation. Yes. There's a lot there to unpack. So, I'm really excited about progressivism. I'm super excited about anarchy and voluntarism. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to have a lot of fun conversations coming up. Yes. It's going to be lovely. Um, do we want to wrap up tonight? Did you want to dive in? There's a lot of crazy new stuff going on right now. Um, if anyone's not keeping up with it, as far as new lockdowns, we've got the Maxwell trial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we save this. We save some of that for our newsy, yeah. our newsy section. This is going to be fun guys. Cause there is so much stuff we don't get to talk about that. I just like cat and I always are, texting each other about <laughs> yeah fun little stories or frustrations or things like that so that's super super exciting thank you for joining us this evening i think we're we're wrapped up on this first conversation about communism obviously we left a lot of stuff out i mean yeah it's like i'm gonna listen yeah. to it and probably be like why didn't i talk about this i'm sure we'll revisit it yeah it's big enough a topic but thank you for sharing with us we're excited about 2022. Um, you know, 
please, if you're liking what we're doing, hop online, engage with us. We love it. Uh, Instagram at Whiskey Bench Pod. We have drink recipes with pictures. So if you're interested in trying one of our drinks, go ahead and hop on there. Um, you know, Twitter, we're not super active on, but hopefully we're going to be, we're going to be more. We want to engage. We want to, <laughs> yeah. I think we should meme a little bit. Share more meme content. responsibly. Yes. Share more content. Um, it'd be great. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on where you listen, if you can leave a review, that would be awesome. I haven't checked in a while, but we did have a, a few new reviews, which warms my heart. It's so kind. Anyone that is willing to take time out of the day to write a nice little message about how they like Whiskey Bench means the world to us. So we really appreciate it. Um, I'm at Twitter and Instagram at Mountain Torna, my personal one. Well, it's MTN underscore T-O-R-N-A. And Kat, where can we find you? Oh, um, probably Twitter is the best place. Um, at Kat J. Dwyer. Nice. She's the one that actually has fun stuff like papers and articles. And <laughs> she like does stuff that you can engage with. I just, you know. You throw out some good tweets. I tweet every now and again. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, I land. Follow at Whiskey Bench Pod, both on Twitter and Instagram, because we're going to be upping our social media game for yes, 2022. for sure. So there'll be good stuff there. And we're super excited to reveal all of our new fun logo stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, see you guys next time. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Stephen, what do you think Ravel is about? I think Ravel is a podcast about how to effectively market our cult. No, no, no. Ravel is a show that shares the basics on how to get into the afterlife in three easy steps. Okay, okay, cut it out, you guys. Ravel is really about why SpongeBob SquarePants is the best story for teaching atonement theories. But how will your belief in God's atonement change when we prove that aliens exist? I mean, it would probably cause an even greater number of spiritual emergencies in the church. Or maybe everyone is just going to conclude that aliens are demons because we can't explain them. If you are thinking about all of these questions too, come have a drink with us. Follow Ravel wherever you get your podcasts. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.